You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Sometimes you schedule things and uh, it works out really well. Sometimes you schedule things and it gets delayed. Sometimes you schedule things 20 times and it just never seems to happen. Our guest today, Seth Zarin, is a founding member of Strong Towns. He is a recovering city planner. He's now a principal with Armory Management Company and Stepping Stone Partners which are incremental developers in Providence, Rhode Island. I think this podcast was originally scheduled for the first week of January of this year. I think this is probably like the eighth or ninth time it's been on my calendar. I think I have canceled of the eight or nine. I think it's been me who screwed up six of them, but I think you screwed up two of them. I so, helped. Yeah, no, it's a joint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome back to the podcast, man. Thanks, Chuck. It's great to be here. Appreciate your time. Appreciate being able to finally do this. Uh, this really came from a conversation we started like a year ago. Well, you and I spent, when we went to Seaside last year as part of Jess Specs, I was going to say induction. Is that what it would be? The uh, coronation, yeah, induction, coronation. Yeah, celebration, <laughs> knighting. The, his the Seaside Institute Award we arranged to meet at the airport. We got to drive together. And that was just a ton of fun because I'm looking at the clock going, uh, I know we have an hour scheduled for this. We probably should have scheduled eight because that's the way our conversation. We could do eight. <laughs> we could do eight. That's the sad thing is that we could do eight. And it would actually be interesting for me. It would be I, fun. It would be fun. But then I'd like forget to make dinner and put the kids to bed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You sent me a couple of things, notes, and I want to I wanna start out with this piece that you wrote for us about do things have to burn down to grow? Because as I as I read this piece, as I went through it, I took it in a little bit different way than you. But I want I want to start with what you came up with, because we talk a lot about complex systems here at Strong Towns, and I think a lot of times when people listen, they can maybe take away this idealized thing about complex systems that these are. These are wonderful. They're great. It's the antidote. And yeah, lots of hugs. hugs. Yeah. Lots of like (laughs) praise for complexity. And the reality is, is that complexity grows stronger by destruction. And one of the greatest benefits of it is that things fail early, but they fail. Right. So talk about this idea that things have to burn down to grow. I came to this piece from actually an academic article that was written about this. The, and I'm actually from California. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. It's an article about the Great Fire in San Francisco after the 1906 earthquake, right? Which is when you grow up in California, is like lore, right? You know, the city of San Francisco booming after the gold rush. You know, one morning, earthquake, half the city burns down. Everyone's homeless. It's this insane, crazy thing. Lots of people die. And an earthquake is a particularly bad way for a city to go because not only does it cause buildings to light on fire when the lamps fall over or natural gas lines break, but also all the water mains get shattered in the ground. So you don't even have a great water supply. It's 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 a really tough circumstance. But this paper, and I, I forget the author's name right now, but this paper was, was basically exploring 
if you look at the land that burned in the fire versus the land, you know, one block over that didn't, what what's what's that look like today, right? Because because there's this moment in time where all the buildings and parcels that burned down, you know, were essentially reduced to zero, right? But then next door there might be a perfectly intact structure, right? You can still use the next day and it might still be there a hundred years later. And so they were looking at, well, what happens to that built environment? And what they found was essentially that by using this sort of randomness of where the fire line stops, right? Because it spreads out and they fight it and they blow up some buildings. And they, they, so it's a kind of random line that the fire crosses or, or, or stops at. You can basically detect that the parcels that burn down are now more intensely used, right? To use the strong town's language, They're bigger building, more mixed use, more apartments, et cetera, right? And then across that fire line is a smaller building, less intense, less mixed use. And that was a really striking finding that speaks a little bit to one of the things that, you know, I wrestle with both as an incremental developer and as someone who's coming out of planning and being in strong towns is like, we want to see places evolve organically. And that's really hard, right? Because what we see in the San Francisco example is like that building that's not burned down didn't change a lot in a hundred years in a very valuable place. And so why does that happen and how do we end up there? And obviously part of that story is regulation, but part of that story is just there's a lot of intrinsic value in an existing building that's usable. And if you want to tear that building down and build a bigger building, you got to build a building that's big enough to treat the value of the existing building just as its land, right? So we often idealize this jump from the single family to the duplex to the three family to the little, but like in many cases, you can't make that jump because the single family house is worth so much. You need to put like a 10 unit apartment building on it to clear. And that's like a, a point of tension, I think, for strong towns, incremental thinking that I, I've wrestled with a lot. I get this a lot from developers, right? Because developers will say, well, Chuck, you're telling us to do something wholly impractical. I can't buy this single family home and convert it into a, a duplex. The economics don't work. In order to do it, I, I have to build a 10 unit building. I get that. I understand that. My response is always, well, the, the market's not ready for that property yet. But you're pointing out something that I think is is important. And I would I would back up and I would say it this way. And let me say it this way and then you you react to it. I feel like the traditional development pattern, this incremental development pattern, the reason why it is strong is because it essentially builds itself into a very stable situation. It builds itself into a situation where the building that is on it is stable relative to the underlying land value. And at some point, and it's not the pop, you know, if you look at the Brainerd examples, it's not the pop-up shack. It's not the wood building that's falling apart. It's that that kind of third generation of something a little bit more stable. Yeah, your climax building, the granite bank. Yeah, it, it becomes such a stable thing that it resists change even when the system really needs to change, really needs to grow. So when an event comes in, like the fire in um, San Francisco is a good example of this, when it comes through and clears out some of that stuff that is, in a sense, stuck, right? It allows the next, the next generation to be built without the need to, in a sense, clear out that, that thing. Like, nature's done it for you now. It's gotten rid of it. That sequoia is like an amazing tree, right? 
but it also like stagnates everything below it and around it and crowds it all out. But once it goes away, now everything else can go. Yeah, and, and part of my background before I got into this stuff was in, was in geology and climate science and ecology and stuff like that. And we talk a lot about the climax forest, right? You get to a climax ecosystem that is often very stable, usually involves some big trees, but that's also what we've realized over time is a somewhat misleading analysis of both biodiversity and also stability because absent humans, climax forests do tend to have a, some amount of disruption, particularly fires and like hurricanes or earthquakes that do knock down a whole bunch of stuff. And that happens across the world where you see like a climax forest will have a hurricane come through and knock down half the trees. And suddenly you're back to not a scrubland, but you're back to something different. And there's a, that, that moment is actually really important for the ecological diversity of the place. Like if it was stuck as giant sequoias forever and nothing ever changed, there would be a very thin ecosystem. You said you wanted to take my article in a different direction. Was that it or is there a different one? That's it. I feel like there is this, I wrote about this in my first book. I don't want people to idealize complex adaptive systems as somehow always good in all instances, because what, what, what does happen is that you do reach a point of success where things become stable and stagnant. And let me give you the human, if you're worried about wealth disparity, if you're worried about entrepreneurship, if you're worried about people being able to uh, move between income classes, having like the stagnant, old, stable cadre of ownership, owning all your downtown buildings, your city is going to be great. It's going to have a steady tax base, be able to maintain all its stuff. It's going to be very stable, very strong, but it's going to lack a dynamism. And I feel like right now we have a system that has nothing but dynamism, right? Like dynamism to the point of stagnation, right? Like it's it's lean so much into the let's build, 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 build. But going the other way, like all the way, will get you that stagnant forest of sequoias, which may be beautiful in some ways, but is not dynamic. Hmm. Does that make yeah. sense? It does. I mean, you said something that I thought was interesting and I think a lot about, which is you said the incremental development pattern. This is a tension I feel a little bit sometimes in the, the larger CNU universe where we've done a great job excavating the patterns, like the style, architecture, details, forms, uses, all that stuff. And even some of the relationships of like how these things work together. But we haven't always excavated the process. And so I would distinguish a little bit between incremental development pattern, like what it what it produces in the incremental development process. And I, I have this debate sometimes with historic preservationists who are like, they want to preserve the historic building by locking down all development, which is, I get why that works for preserving a particular moment in time. But I I like the good urbanism that that historic building represents, which was created by a process and a building culture that is the opposite, actually, of locking everything down, right? And so one of the things I, I, I have a little bit of attention with here is, is that, and, and, I, and it's not just attention, like, I, I think one of the next frontiers for people who care about cities is not just to excavate the architectural and urban design forms of, like, good buildings and good streets, because I think we've, we've kind of recovered a lot of that wisdom that we had, we need to learn to implement it, and that's hard, but, but part of the 
implementation thing is we have to excavate like the business model of doing it right at the both at the municipal level like the, the governmental level at the civic level like and at the actual business developer level like i i would love to know more about how we actually built those buildings you know i'd like to see someone get the file cabinet of all of the receipts for a construction company in 1910 and actually do the monograph about how they built that great main street building you love how much did they spend on bricks how long did it take them to build how, how long did they work with the architect what was the permitting process like we we can't replicate that process because we actually don't even know what it looks like it was three generations ago everyone's dead who knows how to build cities that way and so we're trying to like use a, a modernist sort of top-down carefully regulated format to replicate a form that was created by this organically built building culture now when we were together a year ago we were debating the sort of like well we should just blow up all of zoning because clearly you know zoning is is that one of these tools and i'm like i'm not quite sold on that and part of the reason why i'm not quite sold on that is because like if you got rid of it tomorrow the rest of you know like daniel harris writes about the ecosystem of development like the rest of the pieces aren't there so it would be like you know blowing up part of the forest but you're, you're like missing some species and it will grow back weird right and so it's like you have to kind of like scaffold your way back to a healthy building culture and i think we'll have zoning as part of that for a while but like ideally you get to a good building culture, which doesn't really need that. I mean, I agreed with you on that. People have said that, like, should we just get rid of zoning? And I said, if you if you gave me two options, keep zoning the way we have it or get rid of it, I would get rid of it. But do I think that is the best path forward? No, not, not at all. And let me put some meat on the bones in terms of culture, because I, I feel like this is a really essential thing. I point out that if you lived in my city, Brainerd, in the early 1900s, when I show those photos of the little shacks going to the two and three story wood buildings, and you were the most selfish, egotistical, uh, greedy, like let's put every negative human emotion on an individual. That's what you were. And you were going to go out and build something that maximized your value without a care to anybody else around you. How would you build your building? You would build your building up to the build to line of everybody else, because that's the way you maximize the value. You would make it front the street and open up to the street, because that's how you maximize your value. You would make the building somewhat symmetrical with, with good angles, and you would make the public realm part of it decorative, because that's how you would maximize your value. And essentially, everything that you did to maximize your own value would magically and almost like an Adam Smith invisible hand kind of way, improve everybody around you, even though you didn't care at all about them. Whereas today you would build a drive. <laughs> You'd build a drive through with a big parking lot and a you know crappy sign, and you would be a negative impact on everybody around you. And I, I look at that and it's hard for me not to recognize that as the byproduct of a complex adaptive thing that, that includes not just building form, but culture that grows up in it to, to kind of optimize many things. It's also the structure of construction. Like how do these construction companies work? What's the division of the trades? What are the skills? You know, you didn't have to specify everything about the window because your carpenters know how to make a decent looking window. You know, you only well, had to... 
And if some dummy came to town and said, you know what, I'm going to build a building that is set back and has a, a horse drive through or whatever it would have been, you know, no one would have worked for that person because that person was an idiot. Like they didn't know what they were doing. They right. they didn't, you know, they culturally, get the loan. No, no, exactly. No one would have given them money. And so the idea that we can fix this stuff merely with regulation is wrong. But the idea that we also can just remove the regulation and all of that culture will just like wash back in like a wave. It's not, it's not there. That knowledge set is gone. It does not exist. Like, like I'll give an, an example of one of these that I, that very formative experience for me when I was learning to be a city planner, I went to an APA conference and I went to a session about, you know, mixed use upzoning. And I think it was like Virginia Beach, somewhere in Virginia. We were probably at the same conference <laughs> at some point oh, in the probably. past. It, it was in Minneapolis. So yeah, probably was. If you were in Minneapolis, I was at the APA conference in Minneapolis. Oh Absolutely. yeah, I know. I was there. I was like uh, in grad school running around with the other young kids. That's hilarious. But the firefighters freaked out because they're going to have six-story buildings. And the fire department in this town didn't like know how to fight a fire in a big building. And there's this big back and forth debate with the fire marshal, the fire chief and all this other stuff. And so they eventually had to get the firefighters from like Richmond or something, like a city, to come and talk firefighter to firefighter about like how you do this thing and it'll be okay. Right. But that to me was the realization that like we have lost in many places or or in, in everywhere, partially, we've lost pieces of or the whole of this like cultural skill set, right? Which is, it's not just professional, like the firefighters, it's it's regulatory, it's also, you know, your neighbors, like the, the assumption used to be that the that a bigger hotel downtown was good for your town. And now we're like grumpy because there's gonna be more traffic. Like that's a cultural change in our attitudes about what makes our town good. And all of those pieces are like kind of missing. And it's like, we have to like re-educate our brains to like live in a city. It's like, we're kind of- Well, we even don't having a building with a shared wall. Yes. Right? Buildings that touch. This used to be very common. And I, I can imagine, I mean, again, I think we'd have to go back and excavate the the culture around these things. But I have to believe that downtown Brainerd, as it was built with all these shared walls, did not have the degree of legal work done for each of these that we have today. You would think with the attorneys involved and the things they write up and all this stuff that you know you were mapping out the entirety of the Northwest Quadrant or something to do what is a common like a common building form throughout all of history. Yeah, and the engineering work too. And the engineering work too. I mean, you would you would think that yeah, you were you know doing something that required, yeah, exactly. So how was this done in the past? I, I want to excavate that. I don't know. I need like a you know. I guess the historians are all out of work now, so we should hire some to go do some research. Well, for us. I'm going to suggest that it was not done a without conflict or b without culture. Those two things would have had to have been there existing to where, yes, people are going to argue, but there's going to be a way to resolve that and like cultural expectations about what what that meant and what that would be. Well, that's a great segue too, because that is pointing a lens not just towards sort of regulatory and culture, but it also points towards the subsidiarity concept, right? Because as you were saying earlier, like, Complex adaptive systems are not full of hugs and kisses. There's lots of animals eating each other and things dying 
and there's suffering and there's sadness and there's ugliness in that process. And that's not comforting. That's like, like actually when I was titling this article, like do, do cities have to burn to get better? And you're like, that's kind of dark. I mean, we're talking about how is the people dying and people losing their entire, like becoming homeless, losing all of their wealth to make the city better in the future is like, I don't know. It, it's rational in the time. If you had to choose to be like, no, I'm good. I don't want my city to burn down. Right. It may be better in a hundred years, but we're, we're good now. Like, no, thanks. But because you're pointing to this, this question about like, there's going to be conflict, right? But this is pre-zoning. It's basically pre-building code. I mean, maybe a little bit for like fire protection, like building some things out of brick, but that's it. And and so there's going to be a lot of conflict over uses, over building heights, over windows, looking into my backyard, all the stuff that we currently have turned into a, a regulatory morass would have had to be worked out. We should romanticize it because it's going to be kind of ugly. Like sometimes people with more power are going to just make other people deal with it. And I don't know if that's good, but it's it's like the dynamic that we're dealing with. So how do you, you know, that, that question of subsidiarity and like decision-making closer to the the direct issue is, is really important. It's really tricky. Um, well, and I, I'll say it in, in a slightly different way. I, I feel like a lot of our public engagement and a lot of our kind of regulatory process has boiled down to, we want everybody to either get along or kind of shut up and go away. It's almost conflict avoidance. And, and I'm saying this as a Minnesotan, like I realize, you know, when I go out to where you're at in Rhode Island, the, the conversation is much coarser than it is here. But at the end of the day, it, it is very much driven by this idea that if you can't get along, we're, you know, we want, when you come in with your development, we want you to show piles and piles and piles of signed agreements and, and this worked out and that worked out. Cause I, I'm a city staff member. I don't want to have to deal with this messiness. And the reality is, is that the messiness has to be dealt with in some way. And when we offload it onto developers, what we get is we get really slow, really expensive, not very dynamic development processes. But when we offload it onto neighborhoods, we actually have the side effect of hopefully over time building some culture, you know, building the capacity to work some of these things out. You and I probably both at different times said, uh, not necessarily to each other, but when I was in city government, I used to be a city planner, did project review. And one of the things I saw there and, and also did work legislatively on zoning amendments. I was, I was the zoning guy. And after a year or two of that, I was like, they shouldn't have hired a planner. They should have hired a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> I saw you say social worker, right? <laughs> yeah. A social worker would be great. A, a family, family counselor, right? Because the problems are, you know, there are, yes, there are technical regulatory questions. I was trained to like write zoning text. I could do analysis of like laws and regulations, but, and that's important. Like you do need to get laws to work the way you want them to work. Sure. But that's like 20% of the game. The other 80% is relationships and it's personalities and it's, and all this stuff. And so like one of the consequences of the messy system, right. Of the old, you know, in, incremental development process was that it was very personality driven. Individual people would have relationships or not. They would have fights or not. They would kind of navigate it through personalities and handshakes and direct, you know, friendships and, en and enmity. And our professional world is very unprepared for that in part because everyone's training 
is a technical field. So no one's training other than like the social worker is in, you know, working with people and communications and, and persuasion and, and, you know, negotiation, all those other things, you know, we don't do that. That's not really part of the, the professional curriculum for anyone who's working in city making. Can I take this to the next step? Because I'm sure there are some people who are listening to you saying, boy, Seth, that sounds a lot like an old boys network, handshakes and getting along and agreements. And, and let me say, I think that there is an aspect of that that tends to grow in these systems, right? But let me, let me point out something else. The way that you are describing this and the way that I am hearing it and also envisioning it in my mind is that the investments made to create a prosperous neighborhood have an economic component to them, but they also have a social cultural component to them. And when we look at neighborhoods that are disadvantaged, we look at neighborhoods that are left behind, we look at places that have been redlined, or if we want to go back in history and look at historic Black neighborhoods that were growing up to be very prosperous and very successful, oftentimes what they did really well is they overcame limitations of capital by having an excess of culture and an excess of social bonds and social connections. Because if I don't have to spend the next six months fighting with my neighbor over my shared wall, because the culture that I live in and the society that I live in has a way to, in a sense, moderate that conflict and work that out, I can put that six months of time and energy into something more productive. Like building the wall. Yeah. Like uh, building and that's, it, right. Yeah. Well, and, and I think what you described there is interesting, right? Is that you're you're assuming that those cultures are cultures that build, right? And the predominant place culture around our country is the assumption that we've bought into a finished neighborhood and it's as nice as it's going to be, and it's only ever going to get worse when anyone touches it. So nobody should do anything. And this is where I want to I want to push back a little bit. Uh, not because I think you're wrong, because I struggle with this myself, but you've talked about subsidiary as it relates to like state preemption, right? You know, whether it's California or Texas or Florida or wherever, right? Everybody likes to like jam their own ideological preferences down the other guy, down the end of the block, right? Right. I get it. I've struggled with this too. So, you know, I think I know where you're going and I struggle with this too. Well, right. So like I'm an example of like an upper middle class person who was exiled from my homeland because my culture refused to build houses for us, right? And your homeland was? I mean, I'm from the San Francisco, Bay Area, we uh, invented single family zoning. And it's not really for lack of land. It's not even for lack of ability to build on stuff. But you know, the neighborhood I grew up in, I don't know if it's built five new houses in the last 40 years. But there's been a lot of kids in that neighborhood in that period of time. My parents still live in the house we grew up in. There's three of us. And where are we living? Not there. As that problem gets worse and worse over time, it breeds a certain level of radicalism amongst the people who've been shut out and they're not even just poor people that have been shut out there's a lot of them and they're wealthy and they're but they're like realizing they can't be where they're from and there is going to be a pressure to throw caution to the winds and get stuff done which is a big piece of where like the you know the yimby state level action is coming from because they just don't it, it, it has been an abject failure for local control to like come up with another plan what happened is now my parents in their 80s and they're not near their grandchildren, and we're not near them to take care of them. You live in a place right now that I don't think has experienced the kind of crazy housing costs 
increases that now many parts of the country have experienced. But, you know, in my neighborhood, my kids are going to need a house in 20 years somewhere. It'd be nice if they had the option to live in their city for less than a million dollars, buy it. So we got to build some houses for them, right? That's, that's, or they're going to leave. Like there's just a, there's like a, because in 20 years, I'm still going to live in my house. So where are they going to live? Right. Because I agree with you, like on some level, on an intellectual, on a theoretical level, in the long run, like the, the, the top down is really not healthy and the subsidiary is much healthier. But here's my question for you is like, when you have a place like, like a suburban California town that is full of septuagenarians and above who don't want it to change. And by the way, I don't get to vote there. Only they get to vote there. Like who speaks for kids, for future generations, for people who've been unable to live there? Like where's their vote in the subsidiarity model? That's, I struggle with that because once you get into that culture of lockdown, I don't know how you break it. You were to break the logjam. Right. My intellectual compromise has been, I have an aversion to top down, but I recognize that my aversion to top down has less to do with the, the mechanism of top down and more of the, the kind of stasis that it imposes, the forever. Prop 13 in California is the, is the perfect example. Was Prop 13 a good bill when it was passed? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But Prop 13, when it was passed, should have had a shelf life. Like it should have yeah. had an expiration date, right? Yeah. yeah. My parents pay less in property taxes on their multi-million dollar ranch house in California than I pay in Providence in a house that is worth considerably less. You know, there's a myriad of distortions that come out of that. You can pass it on to your heirs. Well, I was going to say the 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 least of them being the fact that it induces your family to never move right like it it is financially ruinous to actually pick up yeah, and no, move. my parents can't down, downsize out of their four bedroom house because their property taxes would like increase by the roof right exactly financially it's an imposed stasis when i look at like the state of oregon going and saying statewide you can build duplexes on single family home lots the way that I look at it, and I'm I'm a Minnesotan, right? Like it's spring here. Uh, we have these warm days. The water starts to melt and back up. You go out and chop the ice on the top of the drain, and then everything starts to flow again. To me, I look at it as chopping the ice. Like let's let's do this intervention and get things flowing again, and then we can step back and let places start to evolve again. I feel like the top-down system can correct some of the problems that it has created by breaking those jams, getting things moving, and then stepping back and saying, all right, where's the next place where we get stuck? Where's the next place where we get trapped? And, and breaking that jam. What I, what I fear is that, you know, if we say, well, now it's duplexes everywhere, that 40 years from now, we'll be having a debate over why can't I build a three unit or four unit here? Well, because we decided on duplexes you know, 40 years yeah, ago. No, I, mean, I, I appreciate of... your point. Right. And it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's congruent with sort of the, the thought process of subsidiarity where, which is less well, less commonly talked about, right. Which is well, what's the role for the higher form of government. The next level up is to break log jams, you know, and that's sort of its job. To, to break log jams and provide assistance, right? Like I'm going to help you work through and build the capacity to work through the tensions that this creates. I'm not going to save you from it. Right. Yeah, because you're right that like the top-down action is not going to build the building culture. If the goal is we need 
that kind of deep, thick, responsible building culture in society, right? That we need that back. And we've, we've had it on every continent throughout thousands of years of history until we kind of blew it up in the 20th century. I don't think that's hyperbolic, like, and not that everything was perfect in every other place, like, but when you see the, the pattern that remains today of traditional urbanism on any continent, it's really remarkable how similar things are, right? Because the people that built them are kind of the same humans. They're all the same size and same diet and same eyesight and all, you know, the same inputs. But getting back to that's going to be really, really hard. One of my touchstones is, I actually wrote a piece for Strong Towns a while ago about this, but Aldo Leopold, who is a, a Wisconsin, but is a famous American conservationist, and really helped pioneer the idea of restoration ecology. Like you're going to go into, in this case, like a farm that was dust bowled into the ground, right? It was just like wrecked. And you're going to start trying to put the pieces back together again. You're going to participate in that ecological system, which could exist without you maybe, but you're going to help. You're going to be like a part of it. You're going to be a participant. You're going to have some rights and some responsibilities together. And you kind of start putting those pieces back together again. But I, I think you're right that it's it's going to be really tricky for like the state of California, the California State Assembly to like walk any of that nuance. This is why the incremental development work is so important because it's culture building. We're trying to teach people how to do this stuff. I feel like you've enunciated or elucidated my kind of gut reaction to the hyper Yimby groups. And really it, it is this idea that building can be re- reduced to zoning and economics. When I listen to like the big YIMBY organizations in San Francisco, what I hear them talking about is just here is, here's the problem. It is zoning, it is economics. And if we fix those things, if we just get more money and we get zoning, everything will fix itself. Let me go back to your ecology example. I don't know if it was Leopold or not, but I read something somewhere about a person who went in and tried to restore part of a jungle, a jungle that had been like raised for farm field and then it had been burned out and now it was, you know, worthless and they were going to acquire this land and reestablish jungle. And they went in and as humans, they assessed what a jungle should have. It should have these trees and this trees and these plants. And they went in and planted it and it it didn't work. It didn't work at all because they were in a sense, like looking at what the end condition was, not respecting the fact that it had taken literally thousands and thousands of years of stuff growing and dying and nutrient, nutrients being built up and what have you. And, and it, it involved worms and bugs and all kinds of stuff that you just weren't perceiving. And they had developed a more humble approach where they said, this is going to take generations to rebuild where's the first building blocks of this? And they started to do that. I feel often like our response to hardship is to say, well, we're going to just recreate the jungle again. And what does a jungle have? Well, in a city, it has uh, missing middle housing. It has four-story walk-ups. It has, you know, here's the ingredients. I'll almost like pull the CNU playbook off the shelf. Here's the right. ingredients. But, then it's, but it's like the CNU playbook run by like the Politburo. <laughs> It's like yeah, a, right, exactly. a planning model. Yes. And you don't have the worms and the bugs and the organic material and the buildup of, and I would just call that stuff broadly culture or society that to me has to work in tandem with any development style you're going to have. 
but so here's the problem, right? Here's the tension, right? Between like the reason that I'm sympathetic and I, I consider myself a yummy many days, right? Uh, but me too, me too. Is that like I got problems today? <laughs> but my children are growing up and they're not waiting for your jungle to grow back, right? They're getting the house in the meantime. And in this housing crisis, I have a friend who's in Australia right now. I'm like, you think your housing crisis is bad? <laughs> Check out Australia. Like this like spreading cancer across the world of like our housing system is so broken and the prices are going up in a way and the supply isn't catching up and the cost of construction seems to be running ahead of other inflation and just like what do we do you know one argument is well things are gonna have to burn so you're gonna have to basically hit the wall and everyone's gonna be living in tent encampments is that the plan people aren't gonna want that plan or is it to just build tons of apartment buildings and just go for it and hope that the piece is kind of regrow in the middle. I, I, I struggle with this, right? Cause here I am, I'm trying to build culture at the ground level, but there's other people in my neighborhoods and cities that aren't doing that. And the cost of housing keeps going up. So right. let me ask you a provocative question. What city is better off today? New Delhi or Tokyo? What city is more prosperous? What city has a higher standard of living, a higher quality of life? What city would you rather live Tokyo. in? Tokyo. Tokyo, by far, Tokyo. right? Okay, yeah. let's go to 1945. Which city would you rather live in? Right. Right? So when you yeah. talk about things being burned to the ground, you look at a place like New Delhi, which by all accounts, and I have not been, and so I'm I'm stating this ignorant of I the have, facts Yeah, on I've, the been to, I've been to New Delhi. So but you've been, right? So, I mean, you have a place that was built incrementally and has reached points where like there's lots of dysfunction in it. I'm going to acknowledge that, that part of the ecosystem is like, this is maybe stable, but not optimum. Does that mean you, you literally burn it to the ground like you do for Tokyo and now you get. Yeah. For the, for the viewers at home, the reason we're talking about this is because though Tokyo wasn't A-bombed, it was firebombed into the ground. It was firebombed into non-existence. I mean, really the shots of Tokyo after World War II are absolutely gut-wrenchingly stunning in terms of like the level of devastation there was and Delhi is not burned to the ground that way in a long time but one thing i will say this is a little bit of a tangent but i mean the new delhi example is perhaps instructive in a way right and this is this is a little bit to your like i think in a recent podcast you're talking about like the fourth turning and this idea that when like the systems really break all the way it creates this opening because it right because it's not just building new delhi i mean it went through the end of you know colonialism and became an independent country but the city never you know burned down it was fairly i mean partition was not good but it was it's like in many ways fairly stable and the thing that's interesting about new delhi actually this is, this is my tangent which I, I when i was there many years ago now there was a, a professor you know a sort of radical guy who came in and said this really interesting thing right so this is the time where everyone's really excited about informal settlements right slum cities and like the realization that many people in the world live in these informal cities and there's no regulations and yet they build surprisingly good urbanism given that they are like building walls out of trash in plastic bat and then like totally amazing conditions and yet you walk around you're like well you know other than it's being desperately poor it's pretty decent urbanism but his point was really interesting is that the, the general attitude is that the slum is the problem we're trying to solve right oh my god there's all these people living in slums we have to solve this problem they're living in slums and he's like we're, we're not getting it right. The slum is actually the solution to the housing problem, right? There isn't enough space in the formal housing market. So people are building their own, 
right? But if you look at the slum as the problem, the slum is actually a rational response to a very challenging situation. People are going to move to whatever land they can get on and they're going to build a house with whatever materials they can get because the, op- the alternative is nothing. The actual the problem in the Delhi case, one of the sources of its of its is is that lockdown that you're just sort of describing, because it hasn't been radically shaken up, you know, for better or worse. Right. If we were going to impose the idealistic strong towns narrative on it, you would say as more and more people accumulate, as wealth grows, it will eventually, you know, thicken up and become a, a better place. I think when you point to New Delhi, you say, Well, I, I question that. I question that narrative. And like, so the Bay Area is a great example of this, right? The Bay Area is now this fantastically wealthy place. Property values are unbelievably and crazy. Mm-hmm. And what are we getting from it? Like the last time a city had like some crazy economic boom, we got like Chicago. We got New York City, you got Tokyo, you got Paris or, or Berlin or London. We got like big cities full of beautiful buildings. And right now we get, we get is a $5 million ranch made out of plywood. It'd be nice if we got like, you know, a big, beautiful art deco apartment building for those $5 million instead. That would be a, a much better long-term social trade for our civilization. It's like... I've had these long discussions with people about San Francisco because I have to say, as a Minnesotan, I've, I've, I've never quite understood it. I live in a almost 3,000 square foot, I'm going to call it a mansion. I feel like it's, you know... It was certainly, when it was built in 1914, owned by one of the wealthier people in town. I paid six years ago, 220000 for it. It has, you know, the thick oak trim all around. It's got a fireplace. It's got the built-in cabinets. I mean, this place is, is gorgeous, gorgeous. Today, I think it would be worth, you know, I mean, Zillow has it at like 340 or something like that. I think that that's probably reasonable given the neighborhood and stuff. You have not been yet to to my hometown. I feel like I live a princely life. I feel like I live a really high quality of life. Even if you were not immersed in the culture that like I am here, I mean, I'm I'm very tied in with my church. My family's here. I've got history here. Like all that adds to my quality of life. But if your whole thing was, I want to go to plays. I want to go to sporting events. I want to travel the world. I want to you can do that all from here with relatively like no effort compared to someone who lives in a, you know a, a more major city and i've struggled with this because i get like i understand people who are willing on our board we had this conversation once because there was an article that they passed around about some guy who was living under the brooklyn bridge or something in an rv and that was his like answer to the housing crisis. And he's the whole article was about the hardship of his life. And I'm like, he sold insurance, like just on the phone, like he could work anywhere. And I'm like, why doesn't this dude like move up the road from me, buy an $80,000 house, sell his RV, live for free and have like the life. And the response I got is you don't understand. And I will just admit, like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, I don't get it. It wasn't that he had like deep connections socially. He was living in a friggin' RV. His family didn't live in the city. Like, I don't, but he liked living in New York. And so, you know, there's a part of me that's like, I don't know how to explain that or even respond to it. Right. It's not an ahistorical thing, right? People have chosen to live in metropoles, you know, for a long time everywhere. At, at significant cost, relatively speaking, right? To their health and to their housing size. And 
all those other things. That's been a, a human feature for a long time. It, it may be just that people like being around a lot of the people. And, you know, there's a lot of public beauty, too, that comes in a lot of those places, less so in the suburban tracks around it. But, you know, the urban core where there's beautiful buildings and beautiful parks and scenic bridges and so forth, there's a, there's a lot to that. But like you say, you know, if you got a, a $2 million ranch house in San Francisco, there are parts of San Francisco that are absolutely gorgeous, no doubt. But I would say the broad swath of San Francisco is very ordinary. Yeah, it's very ordinary. Very ordinary. I mean, part of it is all the reasons why people don't move at all, right? This is just like family connections, social ties, professional networks, jobs. For my sake, right? So like I grew up in the Bay Area. I graduated from high school in 2001, by which point it was clear that the neighbor, the city that you know around me were going like crazy. Like houses were now a million dollars just for like whatever at the time. And so I went to college on the East Coast. And by the time I graduated from college, it was even more expensive. And I was like, I, I don't see how I'm coming back here. And actually, I have met friends of mine, you know, over 20 years later now from high school who are like living in converted garages behind someone else's house. And they make more money. Than illegal places, right? Yeah. In many cases, like, although they're, they're, they're catching up now. So they're less and less illegal, which is good. <laughs> um, but uh, and so like we moved, you know, I ended up in Boston, Cambridge, which was, you know, relatively affordable. But, you know, as you're a young person, you're trying to find a mate and jobs and do all this other stuff and, and be able to like bicycle places and walk to stuff and go out to bars and so forth. And but then when the time comes, you get married, you're looking to buy a house and you're like, well, can't afford this place either. And so we moved to Providence, just sort of ahead of the wave, you know, because housing prices here have, in our neighborhood have basically doubled in the last six years from when we bought our house. And they're seeing no signs of decline. Whatever Case Shiller Index says, our, our city at least is still going up uh, very clearly. So rents are up and prices are up. We find it as professional real estate people, we are perplexed. <laughs> Like, really? I, I'd imagine, yeah, no doubt. Because when we look around at the indicators, we're like, oh, I don't know, when is this going to like stop going up, right? But then we look around at our rents and our rents are strong. You know, occupancy is full, commercial occupancy is full, rents are going up. So we see what's on the market. We, we shake our heads at what people are buying buildings for. Maybe that makes, you know, we're hopefully we're not the sucker in the wrong way. Right. Because that's what you worry about is that, you know, when when there's mixed signals, you don't want to be the one who got it wrong, right? Well, yeah, it's true. You know, and there's definitely stuff we passed on in the last few years that we're like, huh, that would have been fine. <laughs> like at the time, we're like, that's crazy. It turns out it would be fine. One of the pieces of our business model, I don't know if this is our, you know uncovering the past wisdom, but is one of our core goals as a firm is not to get crushed, right? So we tend to be very careful about taking on too much debt. And keeping a lot of cash and just like... I feel like that should be like the motto of... Yeah. You can make a lot of money in the bull market and then lose it all when it falls apart. And the goal... It's an underrated mindset. Don't get crushed. Well, I, mm-hmm. I have the benefit of older partners who have lived through previous downturns. And they you know, instructed me, right? Is you just got to be really careful because the, the, the real route is you have to survive multiple downturns. And then you're going to do very, very well. And, you know, it's interesting, too, is like going back to the sort of unearthing the history of place building is, you know, there were lots of crashes, right? The, the, the history of like American urbanization is a period of financial crisis and booms. And, and I think in retrospect, a lot of the buildings that were built turned out to be bad ideas. But we as a society have benefited from the accrued capital that others have invested at a loss into our physical environment. 
but so there's a lot of chaos and, and then also a lot of, of income. And I think, you know, you, you know, Kevin Klinkenberg, I think. Oh um, yeah, very well. He's yep. written about the, the, the difference. And this is something I thought about, which is that, that historically, this goes back to unearthing the old business models. Historically, you did much more on the cash flow. Like the, the mm-hmm. real estate was about building buildings that generated annual revenue, like money in your pocket, whatever. Investing in stocks was about dividends, yeah. right? As opposed to price appreciation. Right. Whereas yeah. today, you know, yes, we do that. I mean, obviously, like people like getting checks on the qu- quarterly, but, you know, the biggest value is created in, you know, financial chicanery, right? Whether it's, you know, getting the best loan, selling to the right kind of person who needs the low cap rate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I sort of wonder, like, like, how did they do that? <laughs> they built they built seemingly higher quality, aesthetically buildings, like the more man hours of labor in the details, right? Whether you like the architecture or not, like it's objectively, they spent like more man hours of labor on stone carving and wood carving and all this and, and tile work and all this other stuff. Um, and also built buildings that seem to cash flow. And, and it's just like, but then how did, because I look around, I'm like, but we can't, we can't do any of that. Like I, I see my budgets and I know we have no room for any of these other things. Like, how does this work? So at the risk of sounding like the old man or, uh, you know, the hyper conservative person, I, I do feel like what you're describing is a system that during the great depression and after world war II recognized that we could substitute economics for culture. We could substitute cash flow for the interpersonal relationships. And we tried to, in a sense, every time the economy started to hiccup from that, push more money into the system, ignoring the idea that cities are more than just financial transactions. I want to add something to that. This is something that just occurred to me in the last couple of weeks. Because I, I read an article about how, and I, I'm not a baseball guy, so you'll have to correct me. I see you're wearing the Twins sweatshirt. I am. Um, I got my. <laughs> but, yeah. But um, I've, I've heard this argument that like that Moneyball has made baseball boring because people are now too good at finding the right answer. And I, is that, I don't know if that's the case or not, but it was a really striking comment because it made me think about how when they built the Empire States building, which we all are like envious, and they built the, the tallest building in the world in like a year. Like, yeah, I can't, we can't make a decision to like, we can't complete the architectural design and permitting on a building in a year. <laughs> so like, but they lost money. Yes. What Moneyball has done is it has made baseball less volatile uh, on the, on the margins. So everybody knows now that it doesn't make sense to bunt except in very rare instances. Everybody knows now that it doesn't make sense to steal, except in very rare instances. And so these kind of high drama plays that used to happen routinely in baseball no longer happen. If you can stretch a double to a triple, it really doesn't advantage you all that much because what Moneyball has shown is that you can drive someone in from second base just as easy as you can drive them in for third. So if you've got an easy double, don't stretch it into a triple. That really doesn't buy you all that much. Go ahead and stay on second. And it just takes the game and kind of marginalizes the the action. So here's the connection. Uh-huh, go for it. One of the big things that has happened since they built the Empire States building at a loss, but very fast and very beautiful, is that we spend a lot of time not losing money in real estate, right? We have very 
careful financial modeling. We, you know, there are many unknown, unpredictable things, but there is a level of of financial analysis and financial um, conservatism and and protection that you try to layer in there. It doesn't mean people don't get out over the skis. They certainly do. But they tend to do it less because they have like a really adventuresome design or or program or or project, but because they got a little carried away on the on like I guess the creativity is now in the financial instruments than the architecture or the program or the engine or the structure of the engineering. But I was thinking about this like you know we're le- we we spend a lot more time being really careful making sure this isn't going to be a mess. Whereas I get the sense often people were like I have a great idea we're going to build this building and the, their financial analysis would have been like would have been a true napkin sketch not an excel spreadsheet with a bunch of inputs and a month and a half of debating it with your partners in the bank and your and your appraiser and all these trying to get all this exactly right you would just go and sometimes that was great and sometimes it was terrible but certainly you could make decisions a lot faster i mean you could get buildings done and and that is really different than where we are today let me say it in a different way. We have substituted the risk in construction, risk that could be mitigated by people who knew what they were doing for a more opaque risk in financial markets, a risk that even the smartest people don't fully understand. And the real risk you face as a developer today is not that you'll get in over your skis on a project because when the market's appreciating health healthy, it, it kind of bails you out. And it does. Yeah. The risk that you have is that the overall macro economy will blow up in ways that you don't understand or can't really fully predict. Right. Which causes us to be maybe more conservative than we would be otherwise. Because now the definition of not getting out of your skis is to always be in a position you'll survive the sudden downturn. Well, and I'll say it in a, again, and I think in a little bit different way, particularly as the players grow bigger, what you want to be is big enough to be bailed out, but not so big that you're the albatross that everybody points at. So <laughs> yeah. you, you're almost looking around at everyone else saying, am I, in, am I too far out in front of everybody else? Am I, am I Lehman Brothers or am I JP Morgan, right? Because I want to be JP Morgan because I want to be, I'm going to fail if this all goes bad but I want to be the first one to fail. I want to be like the third or fourth one to fail because, you know, then things will work out for me. Happy days. I got to run. I got to run too. Thank you, Chuck. This was great. Thank you, Um, friend. I don't have have a great closing uh, statement, but. (laughs) I feel like you and I could just do, I mean, we maybe just should put this on the calendar for every four or five months and just say, (laughs) all right, topic, go. Yeah, that would be fun. But we got a building culture. We got to build a building culture. For all the uh, listeners out there, if you're interested in this, um, just get a hold of me. And the next time Seth and I are taking a road trip somewhere, we can have you sit in the bed. Maybe we could do that. Just we'll say uh, fundraiser for Strong Town. You should you get sell to seats. Sit, <laughs> sit in the seat, car with Seth <laughs> and Chuck as we drive across mm. the road to some crazy ass event. Oh, all right, God. man. Good to see you, man. Have a good night. Final question for you. Is this your bedroom? Like, is that your, oh, no, you wear I'm actually, that heart? There's like a your... closet dressing room that we took COVID office off of our bedroom. <laughs> yeah. So these are my wife's earrings over here. Oh, I was um, going to say that that heart one looks like it would look. Oh, really that was good the Valentine my daughter made. Yeah. It's hanging on the necklace rack. Um, uh-huh. But yes, I'm, I'm essentially in the closet, you know, it's a little like, but you know what, you, you know, when, when needs must, you can turn a six foot by six foot space into like something Heck pretty yeah. nice. Heck yeah.
All right. So. Take care. And thanks, everybody, right, for listening. Care, Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Bye-bye, everybody. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.